Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Claire, how do you use your difference to make a difference? That is literally the leitmotif of what I do every day. Um, when I work with a coaching client, then the whole point is there's a different point of view. I'm seeing things from here, he or she is seeing things from there. And to play with that, to dance around the the problem, the subject, the topic, the, the belief, the story, and just to use that different perspective mm. to play is something that I love doing. And I think I do that with even greater aplomb because I grew up with multiple points of view um, that come from the language, the culture, and, and the places that I've been. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Claire Harbour. Claire and I were talking a lot about our lived experiences because one of the connections I made while talking to her is just what can happen when you reflect on what was happening around you when you were born and in your formative years. It turns out that a lot of what was happening in Claire's life ended up playing a role in how she decided to be a change maker in today's world. She currently helps a lot of organizations figure out the right strategy to move in today's landscape. And she's also co-authored a book to that effect. Our conversation is wide ranging as almost every episode of this show is. And I think for you, it's really about reflecting on your lived experiences and the gifts that might be left untapped from the lack of reflection that we often do. I often say we live in a more reactive world as opposed to a reflective world. And I think if we do more reflecting, we're going to find that there are potential gifts that we haven't yet tapped into. So I hope that this episode inspires you to do just that. Enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Claire Harbour. Now she is the CEO of Culture Pearl and author of Disrupt Your Career. We're going to be talking about multiple things as she's quite passionate about creating global leaders for the future. And she uses creative disruption to improve the way careers are made and managed. I'm really excited to have you on the show here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be speaking with you. And yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I know it can go off in so many different directions. Of course. uh, That's the plan. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's be total. Let's plan to be unplanned. (laughs) Well, so Claire, you you have, um, I mean, like you're multilingual, multicultural. Yeah, I believe you got your MBA at INSEAD. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. Yeah, the, yeah. the Global School for Business. The Global School for Business. And and along the way, you've, you've continued to build bridges between individuals and connected people. But I want to go back to the, to the multicultural aspect of who you are at first. 
How did you grow up? And where did you grow up? So I grew up, I mean, I was actually born just north of London to yeah. parents who both carried British passports, but had sort of slight weirdnesses behind those passports that didn't necessarily come out in the day to day, but they came out in their sort of wishes and, and worldviews, I guess. And my dad was a physicist and he was part of the brain drain of scientists leaving the drab, dreary, restrictive, constrictive UK in the 1960s. And he went off um, with his wife, my mom and me aged three months to Princeton in New Jersey. And so my childhood was actually American. Um, so it was as a result of that, I think, and a desire on the part of my mom that I grew up speaking French and English within the home, French with my mom, English with my dad. And on my dad's side of the family, there are Spanish connections of all kinds. And so I would spend my summers with my cousins in Spain. Therefore, you know, just by virtue of having those weird mixed influences in a family that to some extent otherwise looked very British, um, I got to be trilingual and tricultural, well, I guess tetracultural if you include the US um, from a very early stage. And I, I loved that. I found it inspiring and exciting that there were people around me who were from different places. And I guess being in a, a little Ivy League town at a, at a thriving time in, in the US economy and development also showed me that there were people there from all over the world and they were coming together and doing interesting things. And although I was much too young to be very clear about what sort of things they might be doing in laboratories or whatever, it was just exciting to go to school with kids from all over the world and uh, you know, do, do childlike things amongst many cultures, many languages, and to see that celebrated rather than being in any way um, looked at weirdly, which might have been the case had my parents stayed in a, you know, in a relatively drab gray part of the UK where there wasn't so much um, cultural hmm. mixing at the time. You know, you said brain drain. So was there a time in the UK where people were leaving the, the UK? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it, I mean, things go in cycles in so yeah. many different places. Um, you know, people leave um, and whether it's, you know, one group of people leaving one country and making a success in a new country and saying to the other members of the group, hey, come and join us, or whether it's because of socioeconomic or cultural or political pressure um, in any particular direction, then yes, definitely in the early 60s, there were many scientists from the UK who were not finding exciting enough or interesting enough work back home and who were being lured um, to go and do weird and wonderful things. I think my dad spent an awful lot of time with um, Newton's cradles and wind tunnels at the time. Um, so that was what I understood about what he did. He made me my own little Newton's cradle and I used to, you know, pull the pull the metal ball and, and let it drop and send the others off. And, you know, that was my exposure to science. I wasn't particularly good at science, but I was always curious and I guess curiosity is a hallmark of most scientists. Well, I mean, the 60s was an interesting time. I'm, I'm just doing a, a light Google search here. If you uh -huh. Yeah, if you were in Princeton around the time, so this was around yeah. the time of John John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, and then uh, and the, uh, 69 was Nixon. So you, I don't know, were you quite aware of all the 
unfortunate assassination. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I was aware of and what I wasn't aware of. And I think both of them um, feed into the multicultural thing. Um, gotcha. The things that I was that I was aware of, I mean, I was born in 1963, total transparency. I'm going to be turning 60 this year. Um, right at the end of happy, happy birthday, happy early well, birthday in a long, long time, right at the end, of <laughs> long, the long, long, like before, way <laughs> ahead. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so what I would, I mean, I think, um, JFK was assassinated in November 63, wasn't he? Uh, correctly, or it might, I think it might, it was just before or just yeah, after, so it was, it was anyway. 1963. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll look anyway, up the Anyway, yeah. I mean, I don't remember that, right? Yeah. I mean, I was way too small to, yeah. to remember that. But what I do remember um, is that at the end of our little road, which was called Edwards Place, and it was full of university housing, there were the hippies. And the hippies <laughs> had, you know, a beautiful VW Beetle. You Americans say bug, I think. But anyway, we know the car we're talking about. And they would be outside every day decorating that beetle with different colors of psycho psychedelic paint and sequins and all kinds of things. And they were very rebellious and probably, you know, a little bit looked at with a, a bit of consternation by some of the neighbors. But that was, you know, that was my clue into there's something going on here beyond the ordinary, beyond the mm. traditional. And so, you know, that would have been, I guess, 67, 68, as, you know, as things were going down in Vietnam, as, as protests and, and demonstration of difference was becoming more acceptable. And so that I was very aware of. Um, yeah. I wasn't clear what was going on. And because I was an only child until I was five, my sister was born only towards the end of the time we were in the States, then, um, you know, there wasn't that much conversation around the dinner table, uh, you know, two children about politics or anything like that. But I was aware that there was, you know, stuff going on that wasn't like what we did in our house or or whatever. And that was fascinating. You know, one of the reasons I ask you this question is because I so I, I spent the first decade of my life in and out of uh, three military regimes and two of them were dictatorships. So I, I was, you know, you know, zero, you know, zero to to right about 10, you know, nine ish, nine and a half. Yeah. You, I was aware of everything happening. You know, you hear the faint gunshots and 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 yeah. you know of the muted noises. You know, you see the people in exile, mm. and it's interesting as, as I've been reflecting throughout my you know my adult years. It's played a big role in how I see the world, in terms of my passion for social justice or just my aversion for anything that seems unfair and so I, I was i'm always curious about people that grew up in interesting tumultuous times i mean this was deep into the cold war and so um i i wonder if that played a role in why you are so good at being a bridge uh for different cultures well i think i think you've hit on something which i play with and reflect on and sometimes struggle with again and again i mean the easy answer would be yes and to expound on all the you know the brilliant examples of why it's true and i can come to that if you want but yeah what i also know is that i think one of the reasons i've become really good at being a bridge is because of a sense of not belonging not uh, because I was unhappy, but because I was, you know, as were many young people growing up, but I was, I was an outsider. 
And I was an yeah. outsider who was welcome, but I was an outsider. And, you know, I wasn't, um, you know, the, the cute little all-American girl who had grown up and, and lived there and belonged there. And, and so I think there was a, an underlying tendency to look from the outside in and want to be connected and want to understand and want to belong, all the while knowing that I couldn't necessarily but that in the end became the magic potion to say, okay, you can look from the outside in and you can understand and you can then use that understanding to build other connections and bridges. And I'm not sure how conscious that was when I was a little girl, but it was definitely there. Um, and so, yes, from then on, then I've always looked for opportunities to meet and connect with people from different places, different ways of thinking, different languages, different ways thus of expressing themselves. I've been fascinated by expression, communication, the way people show up in their lives ever since I was that little girl watching the hippies in Edwards Place in Princeton. Wow, um, this is so beautiful. I love that. I love that. It, it, okay, it's, uh, ah, gosh, look at that. There's always like a connection because now you do a lot of disruption, essentially. And, uh, you know, you were born in a time of disruption. And because of you being on the outside looking in, you, you know, you, you get to do that in a sense with other companies right now. You get to have that bird's eye view, if you will, to, mm. to see what's working and what's not. Oh, yeah, it's just just, just a connection I'm, I'm pulling here. Yeah, no, <laughs> it might be lovely. a reach. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, okay, so then as you grew up into your adult years, how did you decide what you wanted to do? So we had moved back to Europe by the time I was in high school. And, um, you know, by then I was still trilingual. I guess in high school, I added a couple of languages along the way, um, basically without uh, without any great, you know, great motives. No, that's not true. I added a couple of languages along the way, A, because I could, and B, because... I'd spent most of my childhood believing that what I wanted to be when I grew up was a journalist and to go off and be a foreign reporter and go and redress all the injustices of the world by going to war zones and being, you know, the Christian Amanpour that might have followed Christian Amanpour, except she's still here, so I'd have had to be alongside her. Um, and so, you know, learning languages in order to be able to go and do that work was, was what I was doing and thinking as I went through high school and all through university. And then it was only um, it was only as I was getting ready to graduate and I was making job applications that I realized that I'd been working on a really flawed hypothesis about what I should do and why. Um, I had this moment of revelation. I was taking a break from filling in the application form for the BBC graduate program. And I was walking around um, and had this just blinding moment of why on earth would you think that you can go to war zones and see you know a leg over here and a head over there and a wailing mother over there when you're the kind of person who when she sees strangers saying goodbye to each other at stations is in floods of tears and can't actually control her emotions how could you possibly go off and do that kind of work <laughs> So it was a bit of a shock because really I had set up my whole way of life thinking yeah. that that's what I would do. But I'm very glad, in fact, that I had that moment of clarity because 
it made me stop and say, okay, I really would be foolish to go in that direction. It would not suit me emotionally. Um, I then had an incredibly immature moment in which I sort of stomped my foot metaphorically and said, right, if I can't do that kind of journalism, then I won't do journalism at all. Mm. And um, then was stuck with this thing of, okay, so what will you do? And what I realized was that um, what I'd been interested in in the journalism beyond telling stories and understanding, you know, what's going wrong in in whatever place um, was this idea of being far away, somewhere beyond North America and Europe, which I already knew well. So I went very blindly into a career in, you know, corporate life in businesses in Southeast Asia. And I did that because it was Southeast Asia. I knew nothing about business. As I said, my dad was a scientist. My mom was a teacher. My uncles and aunts were, you know, artists and actors and all kinds of things that were nothing to do with business. There were no role models. I just thought, hey, if joining a company um, that is in Hong Kong and says it recruits people like me is my ticket to Hong Kong, then, hey, I'll go there and I'll do that. So that's what I did. So it was incredibly unplanned in the end. And it did involve convincing the company that I joined that they would want to hire a woman because at the time they didn't. Um, so I had to write them a fairly incendiary letter, which was, um, you know, just the right sort of mix of incendiary and diplomatic, um, <laughs> you know, shaking them up and saying, isn't it about time? And then saying, and you should choose me, which they did, luckily, but I had to fight for it. Right. Wow. This is, I, you have such a fascinating life, Claire, because you I get a lot of, uh, listeners and podcasters who would harp on stories that I don't even, you know, sometimes, sometimes I skim over honestly, when I'm, you know, when I'm interviewing, because I'm so enthralled by the bigger picture of what they're saying, but they'll be like, <laughs> Oh, I really liked when Claire brought up uh, the point about hippies. And I'd be like, Oh, you know what? I should have asked that question more about the hippies, <laughs> but there are all these little minute details that I'm now trying to do as I, as I listen to my interviewers, because I, I want to make sure they, the audience yeah. gets a full picture of that, but I, I'm drawing all these parallels here. You, you, your father, you know, a scientist, you, you know, your mother's a teacher and you have become a teacher and you are a, a scientist. They, they question all these, you know, multiple things and they prove different things. And you have multiple theories right now <laughs> in a, in, in a world that is still divided, but in a different way than it used to be when you were born. Right. Which is which is an interesting place you find yourself here because you, you've gotten to see the threat of a nuclear war. Uh, and then you've you've, you've, you've seen the, the, the fall of, you know, the, the Berlin Wall, which is a representation of that. And then you, you've seen another type of of war where we're having culture wars here. Right. And, and it's through a pandemic. Fighting for your job and people now fighting for their identity. What would you say is the best way for companies to play a role as problem solvers in, in making sure people can regain their identity in a divisive world? Mm, brilliant question. Um, I wrote a little piece this morning um, in LinkedIn about empathy. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's a trendy word. It's an easy word to bandy about. But in the end, what does empathy mean? It means listening to the other person, putting yourself in the other person's shoes, whether that person is just one individual or a host of tens of thousands of people that happen to work for the company that you lead. I think that 
there's obviously a need for more listening yeah. understanding of what an employee a, a member of a company of an organization actually experiences and that listening can go in so many different directions but it should at best be i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast, code acast. Open listening, you know, asking the kinds of questions like what do you need? How can we help you to become a better, more engaged, more excited um, member of this organization. And sincerely listening, probably with some sort of, you know, device on the mouth that stops the, the self-justification and the, and the, the you know, the, the reactions that aren't necessarily helpful or appropriate. And so, you know, I guess, um, it, you know, it's terribly cliche, but that's, that is the, the bottom line. If leaders were to listen more and not just the CEO, but everybody at every level were to listen more to what is desired, what is required and what is fundamentally just needed, yeah. then there's a good chance that they would then rally those people around them to do whatever needs to be done by that company, whether you're selling knitting needles or tractors or, or AI, um, it doesn't really matter. So I think what I see a lot in my coaching work is you said, and I'm going to, I'm going to nitpick a little bit. It's not that I specifically choose never to work with CEOs. It's that I most typically work with C-suite leaders. And what happens is that that is a brilliant window onto what CEOs are doing. Okay. Because so much of the work that I do with a C-suite leader is going to be with regard to his or her relationship with the CEO. What's going on? Did the CEO deliver on what he promised? Is the CEO, um, is she, I'm going to say this time, you know, is, is she um, actually truly representing the values that are stated on the website? those kinds of things. Um, is, is she listening and showing empathy with not just the C-suite, but the whole, the whole corpus of, of employees and, and participants in the company? And so what I see is that there are beautifully crafted values, corporate values. You know, we value diversity. We value sustainability. We put the customer first. They're all on every corporate website. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's it's almost like a, a a social crime not to have that kind of thing on your website. But are those values actually lived out? Are the leaders that are running that company actually aligned in their actions and the beliefs that they spout 
when they are at their most natural and unguarded? And the answer is a resounding no at this stage. I mean, it doesn't mean that people don't try. I don't think that everybody is um, who's leading a company is a bad person, very far from it, but we're just, we're flawed humans and it's often easier to revert to type rather than to, um, you know, to embrace fully the values that one is expounding. And so that's, you know, that's where I love to work. And it's where I see the biggest gaps to be bridged is in, you know, seeing where the alignment is not happening, encouraging those who lead or who would lead um, to see alignment as a daily practice and one that requires total and utter honesty and to practice it. Because if yeah. they don't, then we're never going to get to a stage where any individual whatever his or her provenance, shape, color, size, religion, belief, um, mental status or whatever, cannot feel free to express themselves as they truly are if they're not being included. You know, diversity and inclusion, diversity, it's a checkbox. Inclusion yeah. is the thing that makes the difference and not just in a kumbaya way, but in the sense that um, if you include everybody and you use that strategically, then you're getting so many different opinions and ways of thinking and ways of, of acting and believing that that's going to improve your product, your service, whatever it is you're selling, if you include everybody in it. That's, I mean, no, I, I agree with you that the people are really good at the performance of it. You know, the, the performative, you know, they know what to say, the right keywords, but the living out of it is, is the hard part. And mm. I, I often think about how we don't have enough of an accountability culture and a lot of the people, right? You could be the CEOs uh, or even just leaders, anyone, any members of the C-suite, honestly. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Might not, yeah, it might not necessarily have enough systems of accountability to check on them. And this might mm -hmm. be me reflecting on, on you know, the, the leaders I initially grew up with. But sometimes I, I often think, in addition to leading a company, there needs to be public system of how they will also be held accountability. Just like, hey, this is what we plan to do. If this doesn't happen, these are the ways for for us to be checked. But you know, maybe well, I'm being an idealist. I mean, you know, what, what you're describing is this sort of beautiful utopian thing that I know. I'm an idealist. I know. Doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when people set up the audit firms to audit so that things yeah. with probity, well, guess what? <laughs> You know, think of some of the biggest corporate scandals and some of those names that no longer are the names, but we can trace them back. I'm not going to name them. Our audit firms, you know, who's holding them accountable? Yeah, but, um, but, but who's holding governments accountable? There that, that, that needs to be an accountability inception. Now, now I do, real, I do yeah. often get accused of being an idealist. But the thing that I always, often try to push back on is I think there's a practical way to be an optimist, right? I, I think I'm an angry optimist. That's that's what I say. I'm an angry optimist. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, brother. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not I'm an optimist because I, I don't believe that the world is perfect. But I do think when people have this, this movement where people are, they feel reactive to be able to say, we are diverse, we're inclusive. One of the things that should be said in those moments is like, hey, so in the next five years, we're doing this, but this is what, this is the way you can check to make sure we're doing this. And this is how, will let you know. I, I, I mean, I don't know if that's an idealist way of it. I just think that's that's part of- I know. think it would be wonderful. <laughs> I think probably what it's worth remembering is that yeah. most 
public companies are most accountable to their shareholders. This is true. This is true. Um, And, you know, that may or may not be something that we like, but it is a reality. Um, And I haven't dug deeply enough into the current wave of layoffs in the tech companies, but I'm pretty sure that if company A says we're going to lay off 12,000 people, then the shareholders of company B in a similar field, similar stature are going to say, hey, well, if they can do it and save all that money, then you guys should be doing it too. You know, and and you know, where, yeah. does, where does that take us? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I was listening to podcasts uh, recently and, and they were reflecting on whether it's this is a the layoffs are a reflection of a recession or more of the fact that people overhired during the pandemic. Because mm-hmm. uh, the gentleman was saying the meta basically hired 100% of the workforce during the pandemic <laughs> because of what they target. They thought, you know, everybody thought people will be staying home watching this, you know, and all those things. And then it was like, oh, yeah, maybe we overcorrected, you know. So it, it, it you know, decisions get made and people get treated like uh, uh, paper or, or, or trash sometimes. And I, I often wonder about the humanity like you, like you think about. So. Uh, I'm glad that we have you here because you, you you're the one that is learning how to do well, teaching people how to humanize the people they work with. Well, I mean, as a coach, I mean, it's interesting. There's a distinction between teaching and coaching. I I mean, I do occasionally teach in in universities and business schools, but my main job is to be a coach. Mm-hmm. And as a coach, my role is to ask disobliging questions in service of the growth of the person that I have in front of me. Um, it's never to tell them what to do. It can be to give examples or tell stories of others who've been in similar situations and hopefully inspire um, either by following the example or by not following it because it was disastrous. Um, so, you know, I, I would, would not dream of telling a client to do anything, but I, but my job is to shine the light in the dark corners where there's beliefs, thinking, stories going on that aren't serving either the individual or if they're attached to an organization, by extension, the organization to which they belong. Yeah, um, fair enough, fair enough. And, fair and, enough. and, and I, of course, I'm more likely to attract clients who are tempted to be a little bit more questioning of the status quo of, life in general society in general than some others might be because that's who i am and you know you don't you don't set yourself up for a year of coaching with someone and pay you know tens of thousands of dollars for that if not more um to be coached by somebody with whom your values aren't somewhat strictly aligned yeah yeah well speaking of the disruption let's talk about your book your book is disrupt your career so the book came about quite a long time ago now it's it's quite interesting I, we think of it as recent but it's 2023 and we published it in 2017 so um it's almost become a classic i guess <laughs> <laughs> it's almost vintage uh... um, so so my co-author and i um Antoine Tirard, who's a friend and who's been through in some respects a similar path to me career-wise he and i got together and started writing articles a few years before that. And what we were interested in was what happens when people make big, messy career changes. 
Um, and we and we looked at it thematically and we told stories. So we looked at, for examples, um, you know, professional athletes who naturally or not naturally come to the end of their career before the age of 60, typically. Um, so they've got to do something else with their lives. And, you know, how do they make that transition? And what can we learn from that? Not just in terms of maybe I was an athlete before and now I'm not going to be, but in terms of how people make big transitions, what's good to do, what's not good to do, what's important to think about, how you bring people on board. And so, you know, we started looking at so many different types of, of transition. Mm-hmm. And we wrote articles that were published and well-received. We always told full stories. We didn't want to be just the writers of more business articles or books where you expound on a theory and then you give little examples. We wanted to tell A to Z stories, you know, um, this guy was born here, he grew up there, he was influenced in this way, he chose that career, then he decided to make this big change for whatever reason, Here was, here's what happened, and then draw the wisdom from those. And so as time went on, then there was the question of, well, would you turn these stories into a book? And after much debate, and there was much debate, we decided to do that. And so, you know, we brought together many chapters with different themes, and then we really tried to pull it all together. We created a framework, um, which helps people to think about where they are on the on the wheel of career um, agility, if you like, um, because we're never not on it. You know, we might be in a job, but at some point we're going to be in another job. And yeah. maybe that'll simply be marketing manager in company A to marketing manager in company B. But more and more, people are making more drastic changes. When they change jobs, they often change industry. Um, they might change function. They might change completely in terms of philosophy. And we want to encourage people to do that. We want to encourage them to do that in a thoughtful and um, anticipated way. You know, we like to encourage people to be curating their career throughout, not just when they lose a job or panic and think, oh, help, I hate my job. You know, we want them to have been thinking already about what they can be exploring, how they can be, you know, flexing their career agility muscles as they go along. And so, you know, that was the aim of the book. On the one hand, to encourage individuals to manage and be more bold with their career changes, And on the other, to encourage companies to be much more courageous about hiring people into jobs that may not necessarily have the industry experience they think that they need, but who have a mindset that is crafted and shaped and and honed by the experience of many different careers, many different jobs and contexts and ways of seeing things, because that experience can't be replaced but anyone can learn about a new product or a new industry or whatever by, you know, talking or studying or whatever. So the crusade is as much about encouraging organizations to be more open to hiring people with great mindsets that have been shaped by that than just wanting to do the tick boxing thing for the shopping list of, of cloning the last person in the role. Seems to be more relevant now than, uh, I mean, than ever, just given the times, like you, like we were discussing the the massive layoffs and just people questioning the pandemic really 
having people look inward to question whether they're doing what they love. Much like you, you had that moment of crisis when you were deciding whether you should be a journalist or not. Absolutely. I think there's the questioning, which definitely comes at least partially from the pandemic. There's the, you know, the economic and, um, and yeah, yeah. geopolitical uncertainty that we're living also. <laughs> and then I think there's also the fact that, you know, the speed of change, the speed of acceleration of change is so great that I don't remember the statistic offhand, but you know, our children who are, you know, 10 or 18 or whatever number you care to pick out of the air now will be doing jobs whose names we don't even know exist. Right. That's true. Um, and so, you know, whoever thought that chat GPT would be a thing, you know, chat, what this is the year of AI. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I played with it. It's pretty weird. It's pretty scary. I got it to do some quite interesting tasks and it did it remarkably well. Mm the same as a human but it's really not far off so you know who's going to be replaced um who's not going to be replaced will it be a plus rather than a minus it all remains to be seen but boy if we're not paying attention to our true values and what we're really good at and what people are willing to pay us for and you know that the heart of that ikigai in which you've got all those different elements then um you know we're, we're going to be the ones who get swept aside by whatever tsunami comes next if we're it, not doing Speaking of ChatGPT, I, I was I was just on it because, uh, like you, I've played like I think everybody's played with it. But today, when I went on there, the, the notification was ChatGPT is at capacity right now, and then it proceeds to say, <laughs> "Yeah, it proceeds." It says, "Get notified when you're back," and it proceeds to say, "Write an inspirational speech about chat about the status of ChatGPT," and then it's writing the inspirational speech about. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's it's like being in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, isn't it? You know, how many layers of, of stuff is going on internally to, to make that happen? That's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, honestly, I, I don't know what the future of AI is, but it, on it, there's I can understand the trepidation and the replacement. And then I wonder if we can never even find a, a common ground where we can figure out how to work with it but who knows we're humans <laughs> so indeed yeah i mean it's going to be our job to yeah create our lives in a way such that we can find the role that works yes. and i don't just mean the role in the narrow professional sense but our role in the light in the world in life in humanity yes. in tandem for sure well how can people get your book sounds quite relevant right now <laughs> <laughs> it's on amazon and it's on our website so if you look up claire harbour and disrupt your career you'll find it on amazon and our book website is disrupt-your-career.com okay so there's tons of interesting articles on there too and a couple of freebies that people might find useful as well in terms of just stimulating their thinking We'll make sure i'll put that in the show notes but before you go i have to ask you the final question which is my um, mission statement as you know, um, and I always reframe it as a question. So that is literally the leitmotif of what I do every day. Um, when I work with a coaching client, then the whole point is there's a different point of view. I'm seeing things from here. He or she is seeing things from there. And to play with that, to dance around the the problem the subject the topic the the belief the story and just to use that different perspective mm. to play is something that I love doing and I think I do that with even greater aplomb because I grew up with multiple 
points of view um, that come from the language, the culture, and, and the places that I've been. I think your lived experience gives you such a, a great uh, lens, if you will. And so it's it, it's it's such a beautiful way of, of using that and turning that into an advantage. So thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure for me too. Thank you so yeah. much. Pleasure's mine. Kings, queens, and royalty. Until next time, use your difference <laughs> to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.